Good evening. It is so good to be together to worship God this evening. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. Thank you for being with us. We won't have slides tonight, but if you will, open your Bible. We'll be studying out of James, the second chapter. The Bible that's in your pew, if you need to borrow that one, please be sure and do that and follow along. Let's study God's Word together. It'll be somewhere around 1,072 or 1,073, and we're looking at James, the second chapter. We're thankful for the ladies of this congregation who had a wonderful uh, ladies' breakfast uh, Saturday, yesterday morning, and it was a great success. And we appreciate each one that worked hard to make that available so it encouraged so many other ladies and the great uh, good that will come out of that even throughout the year. We're thankful for the leadership retreat, and I know I've heard various ones of you say that you've been praying about that, and we really do appreciate that, and it was a tremendous time. We appreciate John Michael and his leadership in the involvement area and his putting that together. Appreciate uh, Ronnie Travis and, and the tremendous meals that, that he provided for us. It's kind of amazing to me that one guy can prepare food for that many people and it all be warm and, and so delicious. I appreciate John Stallworth. We had a lot of good lessons, a lot of good speaking. Uh, but, but the last lesson was, was from John Stallworth closing it out and offering a challenge uh, to all of us as, as ministers or elders or deacons. And it was a powerful, powerful lesson. And it's just a good weekend and a lot of, a lot of Bible study and uh, a lot of prayer, a lot of soul searching as we concentrated and focused upon souls. And so we're thankful that God's given us the opportunity to serve together. And to God we give the glory that truly His will will be done. We do want to remind everyone, one's even asked me today, did I miss that class? Remember the beginnings class, you haven't missed it. It begins Wednesday evening. Uh, please help us get the word out. And if you have been baptized in recent times, and, and even if it's been a year or so back, and you want to come and be a part of this class, we want you to be a part of this class. If you're married, we want you to bring your spouse with you. And this should be a rich time of study. And uh, we look forward to, to the good, to the growth that can come out of that. It'll be in room 208, which is up the stairs. And as you go straight, it's the last door on the right. And the men's class that's been meeting in that is going to meet in a lower level room. I believe it's LL4, but you'll find us there just to the left of the fellowship hall that's downstairs. Do keep in mind that you have your Sunday bulletin and in that is a list of gifts. If you want to give a baby shower to Agape and participation in that, the list is there and the baby bed is, is there in the foyer and you can just set the gifts inside the baby bed over the next week or two. And then also uh, the, the Womack family, if you want to give a check uh, to help them, you can make that out, of course, to the Mount Juliet Church of Christ and then earmark it that you want to help with that adoption fund. And we look forward to seeing the good that can come uh, from our efforts this month. And let's continually be prayerful. Let's continually be very intentional to find the ways that God would have us to make a difference in the lives of the helpless and of the speechless. When we think about faith, we think about trusting God. Now we know that faith comes by hearing, hearing from the Word of God, Romans 10 and 17. But we also know that we have to trust God enough to say, I'll do it. I would think that everyone in here has seen the trust game played. Well, MSN.com that I regularly go to to get my news, they had a little trending videos this week. And one of them was a failed trust game. Well, naturally, that got my curiosity. It killed the cat, too, I guess. But I clicked on it, and, and um, 
and I thought it was going to be one of those intentional setups. And really, as I clicked on it, I, I kind of even said to myself, I don't know if I said it out loud, but I said, this is cruel. You know, I thought I was going to see an intentional setup where they let somebody fall back and, and, you know, hurt themselves. But instead, what it was, was it was everyone involved had very genuine motives and, and it was supposed to go well. And it was two little girls that looked probably about 12 years old. And you could tell the father of one of them was, was recording it and he was also giving instruction. And so what the little girl that, that had never done the trust game before, the other girl, her friend, it was obvious, was explaining it to her. And so she said, and what you'll do, and she crossed the other, her friend's arms, and she says, you'll cross your arms like this. And she said, then you close your eyes. She said, okay. And, and she said, and then I'll catch you. And, and of course, this, the girls were small enough. You know how sometimes we play it and spread out and you let them fall way down. Well, you could tell this little girl, she was only going to let her fall back like this far. And she put her hands behind her back, just about a foot. And, and so, but now keep in mind, she sets her up. She says, cross your arms, close your eyes, and she's helping her do that. And then she gets around. She says, okay, fall. And the little girl just face plants. <laughs> and you're like, wow, just a little miscommunication. And, and of course, the little girl's eyes, as she saw her friend falling the wrong way, you know, was like, how do I stop this? It was impossible to stop it. It, it was funny. But it, it just, um, it reminds you of the fact that that just because we have trust and just because we communicate trust doesn't mean that everything is a trustworthy situation. Even uh, in First in John, we're clearly told to test the spirits. In other words, there are lots of faiths. And what we need and what we must do is we must continually test to say, is this the faith that God wants me to have? Oh, we could probably talk all night and all week about the other faiths that would be practiced around this world. But you remember in the seven ones in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, there's one faith. And so in James, the second chapter, in the last half of the chapter, he spends the entire time talking about what a living faith would look like. And he really, even though it's probably one paragraph in your Bible, if you glance down, probably 14 through 26 is one paragraph. We could break this up pretty naturally also in three paragraphs. And tonight, I'd, I'd like for you to think about that, that one phrase, and then we'll jump right into James. It, it's one of the most beautiful descriptions of the need for faith in Hebrews, the 11th chapter and verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. For we must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Listen, everybody here surely has a heart that says, I want to please God. Without a faith that believes that He is and a faith that diligently seeks Him. We're talking about a faith where, where seeking God, seeking His will in your life is of the highest priority. It's not something we casually do. It's something we diligently do. It's not something we sometimes do. It's something we diligently do. It's not something that's passed through our mind from time to time. In other words, it's not only an intellectual thought. It is something we diligently do. And that's what James is trying to do in the last half of the second chapter is he's trying to show that faith without works is dead. 
That really is the, the one reoccurring theme throughout this short topic here between 14 and 26. As a matter of fact, if you want to put your eyes on that, just so that, that, that we have that in our mind as we break down uh, this teaching here. Look in verse 17. Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Look at verse 20. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead. Look at verse 26. For the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now obviously James isn't telling us this because he wants us to develop dead faith. He's showing us the seriousness that not just any kind of faith will do. And so what does he want us to do? Let's look at the first few verses as he does spend much of the time in the first few verses talking about what dead faith looks like. And then he even illustrates it by showing us what demons faith looks like. But then the last part, he shows us what a living, not dead, a living, vibrant faith looks like. And so let's look at this in verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works. Can faith save him? Now, pause there for a moment. When he says, can faith save him, he's talking about that faith that he has just described. What does it profit if someone says, hey, I have faith, but now I don't believe in a faith that, that does works. I just believe in you just say the right things, you just believe the right things. It's just an intellectual exercise. And so here, James asks the question, well, what, what does that kind of faith profit? And a real important question that deals with the prophet, will it save a soul? Because think about the word save. The sa word save in the scriptures always goes back to life. You remember Romans, the sixth chapter, verse 23. The wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the whole idea when the scripture speaks of saving or salvation, he's talking about eternal life versus eternal death. And so here he says, okay, what does it profit? You say, hey, I have faith. Now I know I don't have works, but I have faith. And he says, will that save you? And then of course, James, as I mentioned to you last week, he is the master of the New Testament writers. He is the master of illustrations. And so immediately he says, if you're having trouble understanding this, I can illustrate it real simply. Notice the next two verses in illustration. He, he, it's almost like he's making this up, but it's realistic. And he says in 15, if a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Now it's real easy to imagine this scenario. There are two brothers and one brother doesn't even have enough clothing to stay warm and is very hungry. And another brother has sufficient resources not only to take care of himself, but to take care of his brother. He has a faith that is intellectual enough that he knows what to say. And so he says what would almost be considered a blessing or a prayer toward the one. Oh, I hope you can depart in peace and I hope you'll be warmed and I hope you'll be filled. And it's almost like we would quickly today say, and God bless you, brother. Now, you remember what the question right before that was? 
can, if somebody has a faith without works, he, he loaded it on both ends. He started by saying, what does it profit and can it save you? And so he says it would look like this. A brother has the opportunity to help another brother and he won't help them. And how did he close this? What does it profit him? Now it's real easy if you separate these verses from each other to think that he's talking about what does it profit the brother that went away who is still cold and is still hungry. And, and that would be a worthy discussion and perhaps that's a part of what James had in his mind. But I believe that what he certainly had on his mind was because he ended with the same phrase. Now I know I've said it several times, but lest you've not uh, have caught this by now, look at the end of verse 16. What's the question? What does it profit? Look at the beginning of 14. What's the question? What does it profit? I really believe who James is talking about here when he gives this illustration, a brother watches the brother go and, and he lets him go and he doesn't help him and he says, what does it profit? He's talking about the one that had the resources, the one that had faith without works and he says, now what has it profited that individual? In other words, Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, J James, the half-brother of Jesus, would have known definitely the teachings of Jesus that you and I studied last week. Do you remember in Matthew, the 16th chapter? You remember that powerful question that's asked to us in 26? For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Do you remember the very next verse that summarizes this? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and, when, and then he will reward each according to his work. What does it profit if I say, you know what, if, if I help my brother right here, it's going to cost me $50. I'm going to need to buy him some cheap clothes, and, and I'm going to need to buy him at least one meal. You know what? I could just give him some kind of religious jargon. And, and in other words, I could just say, God bless you. And you know what? I go home with my $50. Look what I've profited. I have eased my conscience. I have made myself look religious. I like this faith. Look what I've gained. I've kept my $50. And the Lord says, what have you gained more than that? What if you gain that 50 and another 50 and another 50 and you gain the whole world and you lose your own soul? He says, don't you know that the Lord Jesus is coming in his glory and there's going to be a day where you will stand up and you will give an account for every deed or every work that you do. You see, James 2 is all about faith and works. If you read it out of 1 John 3, 16 and 17, that, those passages mean a lot to this congregation. Remember our 1 John 3, 16 ministry. And you remember what he does there is the very same example that he gives. A brother sees a brother in need. What if we shut it up and we don't give to them? And he rebukes it sharply. And he says, instead, we need to love what? In truth, the word of God, where faith comes from, and in deed. John calls it truth and deed. James calls it faith and works. Jesus here, he speaks more to the broad principle and he says, you want to not live out your faith? Not put it into action? Because then you think you get to keep some things? The problem is, 
You may keep a lot of things, but you'll lose your spiritual life. Now we're back to death. You see what James is saying? What does it profit? You want to show me faith with no works? Will a man be saved? And then he gives that example and he closes it out by saying, now, what will it profit? There is no spiritual profit. There is no spiritual gain. The soul is lost and it is the greatest loss of all. And so what's the summary? Look at verse 16, James 2. Look at verse 17, the summary of, of these three verses. We just read it a while ago, but I'd like for you to see it again in this context. So what's the summary in 17? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so he gives a very short teaching in verse 18 and 19. He says, okay, let's, let's give another illustration because he is just the king of illustrations. And he says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So now he begins this by saying, let's talk about a faithful brother or sister. A faithful brother or sister is going to say, sure, I have faith, and you can see the demonstration of my faith by the fruit that is produced in the works that I live out because faith obeyed produces works. And he says, so sure, you ask me about my faith, I say, look at my works and you'll see the result of my faith. And he says, but yet on the other hand, you're saying, show me your faith without your works. And he probably at this time is biting his bottom lip because it's kind of humorous in a sad way. How are you going to show any faith when it produces no works? That is a weak, distorted view of faith. How many people do you know? And I don't say this to judge people. I'm simply trying to make a point here. How many people do you know at your workplace or friends or people in your neighborhood that if you said, hey, do you have faith in God? And as quick as you could ask that, they say, absolutely have faith in God. But nothing in their life this month, nothing in their life perhaps last year or the last decade has proven any faith by the way their life has been demonstrated through obedience. And so James here is probably a little bit sarcastic He's definitely an in your face at this moment in time. And so it's kind of like, oh, really? So you're going to show me your faith without works. It's almost like his arms are crossed. He said, I'm waiting. I'm still waiting. I don't see it yet. Show me your faith without your work. I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing this. And he says, because I'm going to show you my faith and I'm going to show it to you by my works. The, the fruit of my life will prove where my heart is and where my faith is and where my devotion to God is. And then he pulls out an illustration that it would almost be a shock if we have never heard this in our life before. If we had never, if the first time we really hear this, it's probably, is he really going to go there? And yes, he does go there. Look in verse 19. He says, you believe that there is one God. You do well. It's probably some sarcasm there. Even the demons believe and tremble. And so he talks about intellect and emotion here. And he says, you know what? Demons are not atheists. They are believers. And also, demons are not agnostic. They tremble. They believe that God is very much still involved. 
And, and they tremble. Now, we don't have time to develop this, so if you're taking notes and you want to jot these down, I'm going to give three quick references to the times, not all the times, two, three times that Jesus dealt with demons. And I just want to quickly mention to you what demons knew. I'm, I'm going to look at Luke, the eighth chapter, and in verse 31, when the demon-possessed man was being healed here, it's an interesting back-and-forth discussion. And, and, and finally, the man in 30 answers that his name is Legion because there are really many demons that have entered him. And 31, notice, and this is Luke 8 and 31, they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. And so the demons believed in Jesus so much that they knew that Jesus would control where they would spend or exist in the other side. When we go to Mark the third chapter in verse 11, Mark the third chapter in verse 11, this is talking about the many works that Jesus did. And notice it says in 11, and the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, they fell down before him and cried out saying, you are the son of God. Now, that's powerful. What did the demons do? Just as James said, they believed there was one God. They looked at Jesus Christ and they said, you are the son of God. Let's back up to Matthew the eighth chapter. Matthew the eighth chapter, we have two demon possessed men being healed here. And in, in 28 where it started, and in verse 29, we see in that suddenly they cried out saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus? You, son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, do you see what's being referred to there? Yeah, again, they referred to Jesus being the son of God. But they said, in other words, have you come to cast us into torment? We didn't think it was time yet. They knew that there was one God. They knew that Jesus was the son of God. They knew that Jesus had power over them and they knew that one day Jesus was gonna cast them into eternal torment. They know all of these things. And so the power is we read through the gospels and we understand clearly in, in the realm of what we're discussing here at least of what the demons understood. And James says, you wanna talk about faith without works. That reminds me of someone, a group. It reminds me of the demons because you know, they had a belief in God too. They had an understanding of Jesus Christ. They believed in an eternity too. They believed that he would judge their eternity. And you know what? They trembled. Listen, there are a lot of faiths. And a dead faith is a dangerous faith. A faith that rests solely upon intellect and it never becomes practice in our life. It's a dangerous, dangerous way to live. And so the better way to live, we see this beautiful description. 20 kind of sums up 18 and 19. We read 20 at the beginning of this lesson. Remember, it was, do you not, uh, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And so now we have this beautiful description of, of two characters out of the Old Testament. Again, James being one to illustrate this time with Old Testament characters. And he uses Abraham and Rahab. And he says, was not Abraham our father justified by work? Now that's an interesting choice of terms there, justified by works. When he offered Isaac, his son, on an altar. Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by his works, 
faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. I want to remind you at this time, James is writing to believers. And so the, the idea that when he uses the word justify here, it's not in the sense that, say, right here is someone living in the depths of the world and they want to be justified so that they can be saved and move here and say, well, you're going to have to do that by works. That's not the context that this was written. Abraham, for example, the example that he uses, Abraham was already in a righteous relationship with God. And so his justification by works was not justifying him so that Abraham, who was lost, would then go and alter his son upon an altar, and now the lost Abraham would now be saved. The justification was the idea that these works justified the faith that he had. In other words, you would say, God, how do you know Abraham is such a faithful man? And God would say, his works have justified that fact. Look at what he was willing to do. You probably know this story. And I beg you, there, there would be some in this audience that you don't know the story. And so I beg you, jot down Genesis 22. And you go back and you read that story and you probably won't be the same. When you say, what is it that God would ask of us? And here we sometimes call Abraham the father of the faithful. And him writing to the 12 scattered tribes, they would have loved Abraham deeply. They would have held Abraham up through scripture, but even through their own writings, they would have held Abraham up highly. Who was he? He was the father of the faithful. And so here is a, here is a paragraph about faith. And so what he does is takes the father of the faithful and say, look how his works justified his faith. And what was the work that was brought out here? Of course, he had a life of works, but what was the one brought out here? And it was that that I doubt many of us can, can hardly imagine. You remember when God came and told him, I want you to go and offer your son Isaac upon an altar. Remember, they waited and waited for Isaac to be born, knowing that he was going to be part of the answer to that covenant promise that through his lineage would all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so Abraham had to wait until he was 100 years old for Isaac to finally be born. And, and now it's going to be through Isaac that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so what, the reason I'm taking the time to develop this, I want you to see two things about this. The great demonstration of his works here that was a part of his faith was because number one, he was asking a huge sacrifice. God is saying, I want you to go and offer your son on an altar. That's a huge sacrifice. But number two, it didn't make sense to the human logic. Wait a minute. The son that we had to wait all these years to have so that he, that our seed would be passed through him so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And now you're taking his life before he has offspring? Human logic, it wouldn't add up. Sacrifice was huge. What's he gonna do? God's asking too much of me. In other words, I do not have that kind of faith that would produce that kind of work. Where would you stop? How shallow is your faith? What is it that God would ask you to do that you'd say, that's it. My faith 
is not large enough to produce that kind of obedience. But then sometimes how arrogant are we? Oh yeah, we're quick to obey God as long as we can understand it all. As long as it makes logical sense to us. As long as we can see how step one affects step two and how that blesses step three. And then God asks us to do something that we don't understand. Why would God ask me to do that? That's difficult to do. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And so we begin questioning God instead of having a faith that is so large, so dedicated that it would produce the actions that are just as large and just as, as dedicated to God. Abraham is a powerful example. A powerful example of that kind of faith. But then it's almost like if you're going to go to Old Testament characters where you say, there's a big difference in those two. Then he turns around and he chooses Rahab. Of course, she wasn't a Hebrew. She wasn't a Jew. She's a Canaanite woman. And she wasn't a woman of, of virtue or high character. She was a prostitute, a harlot. And yet, whenever the spies came seeking help, it wasn't just her wanting to be, quote, a good person. There was a huge element of faith because she told those spies, she said, we have seen or we have heard that your Lord, and this is in Joshua, the second chapter, and then part of it is also in the sixth chapter, says, we have seen or heard that your Lord has dried up the Red Sea for you people to be delivered. And said, we've heard of what your God has done to the king and the people of Og and of Sidon. We've seen that kind of destruction. And after she says that, she says, we believe that your Lord is the God of heaven and earth. And she hid those two spies. Not because she was just trying to be a nice person. The reason she was rewarded was because of her faith. Listen, out of all the Old Testament characters, she's one of the few that's mentioned in Hebrews 11th chapter, the great hall of faith. It wasn't because she was just being a nice person. She hid those people because of her faith in God. She observed something about the almighty God. And I'm sure that there was so much that she didn't understand about him. But what she had gathered by this time, she believed that he was the God of heaven and earth. And she wanted to have a relationship to know more about that God. And she believed that that God could preserve her life when her whole city was destroyed. Friends, that's faith. And it was faith that put her into action. And what she did was because of her faith. And so let's read that and let's bring this to a close. Look at 25 and 26. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead. What is physical death? Now, clinically, we could talk about a lot of things. But if you want a simple definition of physical death, it's when the spirit, the soul, leaves the body. We are dead physical. That's a separation. Well, what is spiritual death? So faith without works is dead also. Rahab's faith put her in to works. Abraham's faith put him into works. And those works were greatly sacrificial and great steps of faith. The only time that the word faith only is used in the Bible is in verse 24. 
And I'd like for you to see how it's used. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Listen, there's no such thing as a living faith that will profit us that isn't followed by a submissive heart and life that says, I will obey. This evening, I'm thankful that we're here to worship and to study. But I believe what God also wants to know is how we're going to live when we leave here. Will our faith be lived out? And we must hear the hard words that if we're not willing to live it out there, it's dead. We're dead. And we need to ask that question. Eternally, what does that profit? It's the greatest loss we could ever experience. But what if we live? What if we believe in God so much so that we say, Lord, whatever you ask, I want to do. Your will be done. You want to see my faith? As James said, look at my works and you'll see my faith. Tonight, let's be devoted. Let's be faithful. There's not any of us that could ever in a million lifetimes earn our salvation. But at the same time, the grace of God will only reach those who are faithful. Without faith, it is impossible to police him. This evening, can we help you in any way? If you're ready to be immersed into Christ, you're ready to come back. If you need prayers, if we can study with you or walk with you, we want to do what we can do. We'd love to.